The feast of the baptism of Christ brings the Christmas season to its official end, probably to the relief of some who began celebrating it two months before its official opening on Christmas Eve. Years ago, when I worked in Minnesota among God's frozen chosen, a cranky parishioner exhausted from caroling and making merry well into January told me after Mass on this feast day, that he thought Christmas was like the baseball season. It went on far longer than it needed to. I took the hint, and out of that perverse streak in me that comes from the Irish side of my family, added a Christmas carol to the recessional hymn the following Sunday, the second Sunday of uh, Ordinary Time. In the good old days, we shamelessly went about our business making merry over the Incarnation until February the 2nd, the Feast of the Presentation. The Christmas trees and lights all came down on the third. We were out of step as ever with the world around us, but then the world around us was marching to the beat of the Cold War and the dark promise of global nuclear extinction at the push of a button. In the face of that grim reality, celebrating Christmas into February was not merely an act of hope. It was an act of faith in God's future. This is what the Feast of the Baptism of Christ is meant to do. It is the extension of the joy of Christmas and the light of Epiphany into the cold and dark of January, a month so bleak it needs all the help it can get. It is the Church pondering over the mystery of a God who loves the human race so much that he ultimately became human and remains human. Because even after his resurrection, Christ is still a human being, his divinity forever wedded to his humanity. We use language like this so often that it threatens to become a cliché. We forget that the baptism of Christ was a deep embarrassment for the early church. John's baptism was for repentance of sin. So what business did the sinless one have in submitting to it? To find the answer to that question, you have to page all the way back in your Bible to an incident that happens in 1 Kings 18, the famous duel between the prophet Elijah and the priests of Baal. Each side calls down fire from heaven on the sacrifice lying on two separate altars. The pagans lose, of course, that's a foregone conclusion, but in the meantime, the prophet has a little bit of fun taunting them with the suggestion that their god, Baal, doesn't answer because he's napping or maybe away on a vacation somewhere. The point is that this is not a god you can actually rely on for the simple reason that in the end he's not a god at all. Then it's Elijah's turn. And just so that no one thinks he has something up his sleeve, he instructs his servants to pour jars of water, 16 in all, on the sacrifice lying on the altar. And in response to his prayer, fire descends from heaven and consumes not only the sacrifice, but the altar, the soil, and the water lapping at its soggy base. Back to the gospel. This is what John does in the baptism of Christ. He pours water on the sacrifice because Christ is the lamb that will be slain. And the Holy Spirit descends from heaven 
revealing the true nature of this Galilean carpenter as the Son of God and Messiah, the same Spirit that will descend on Pentecost like tongues of fire, signaling the ultimate acceptance of the sacrifice. We have barely finished celebrating Christ's birth, and the liturgy is already gently pushing us down the road to Good Friday. The cross is the sign of the ultimate length to which our God is willing to go to reconcile us to himself. There is an amusing Yiddish proverb that says, if God lived on earth, all his windows would be broken. In other words, in the end, God takes responsibility for all the blame on the planet. Today's feast is helping us make sense of the fact that God did live on earth in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, and we did far worse than break his windows. <laughs>